Well, good morning. It's good to be together. And uh, we're excited to start a new series uh, for the month of August. It's called God is Our... What? Well, quite a few things. And so we're going to be going through the uh, few Psalms, Book of Psalms, just for these five weeks of August to think about what kind of a God we have and what a difference he makes to us. And uh, actually, the Book of Psalms is, is a book that I think eventually becomes dear to everybody who's a, you know, a, a Christian. Eventually, I say that because initially a lot of people kind of go, oh, Psalms. You know, it's kind of for old people. But I think the reason old people like it is because they've experienced life. And when life hits you and, and struggles and challenges and emotions and all of the, the, the kind of the swirl of life, eventually you find your way to the Psalms and you end up saying, this is such a precious book. And the, the Psalm we're going to look at today is incredibly relevant to us. I, th- I hope that by the end of it, you'll say that actually is what I need in my life right now today. Now, I grew up with this psalm right in front of me. I went to a church, uh, maybe some of you did uh, growing up, that had a Bible text on the front wall. We weren't allowed to have statues or pictures or anything else. There's a whole theology and history behind that. But we were allowed to have Bible texts. And so the Bible text, and I think there's only about five that churches use, <laughs> I've noticed. But the Bible text that I grew up with was, was this, be still and know that I am God. And I always thought that feels kind of relevant because I'd walk into church and everything was still. It was remarkably quiet. Uh, It it felt a bit like a monastery, to be honest, at times. And and we'd come in and we'd sit down and be 20 minutes of dead silence before the service began. And I always thought that that was because of that verse. Until I realized that that verse isn't talking about being quiet before church. That's, That's an option and churches do that and that's great. We chose to have refreshments and interaction and a friendly atmosphere but you know either way is fine but but actually that verse is not really saying shh it's not saying have a retreat have a little spiritual moment it's actually referring to something that i think i only experienced in that church once just a little taste of that verse in its context it was the week when the the youth of the neighborhood decided to play up. I mean, it was a, a rough neighborhood. It was in Bristol, and, uh, a certain part of Bristol. And the youth decided it would be a fun idea to throw stones at the church while we were meeting. And most of the people in the church were over 60, over 70-ish. And so you can imagine, for those that could hear what was going on, it was quite distressing. I was young. I was finding it a bit intimidating, the pounding on the doors and the shouting. And, and it was just a little taste of the context of that verse. It wasn't a big situation. It wasn't a big problem. But it, it got the adrenaline going. It, it was one of those moments where life suddenly feels a bit destabilized. And this psalm is perfect for that kind of situation. For, for a time when your life feels destabilized. I wonder if you've had that feeling uh, with the news in the last couple of weeks. I sort of keep my finger on the pulse. You know, I like to know what's going on. I don't tend to to dwell on it massively. And I'll be honest, for probably for the last 12, 13 years, whatever it's been, nothing's really kind of stirred me until these last couple of weeks. And some of the things that we're seeing and some of the things we're not seeing is genuinely frightening. I mean, there's, there's stuff going on in China. China's developing and becoming quite significant, and that will be news eventually. Russia is suddenly very different than it has been for quite a while, or at least it's, it's showing. And the Middle East, I mean, we keep getting news about uh, Israel. What we're not hearing about is Iraq and Syria. 
And some of the things that are going on that the news is not telling us about, I find genuinely frightening. Just this, this advancing persecution against the news would call it minorities, let's just be clear, Christians, all right? The, the uh, persecution, the kind of the tip of the sword where you either convert or you die. And people are dying. Was it last Monday, 1,500 were killed in, in one situation? Uh, I got a, a notice yesterday from the vicar of Baghdad, and some of you maybe have come across him as he's visited this country, uh, and he was describing a photograph that he'd received of a family, and he said, it's so horrific what happened, I'm not even going to show the photograph to you. And, and you, you read that, and you think, oh my goodness, what is going on? Suddenly, uh, after all these years of kind of the, the Middle East being in this dynamic tension where different dictators were kind of holding each other in in gridlock suddenly it seems to have opened up and there is a very frightening development there and if that keeps going and if that persecution continues what's next well europe it seems obvious the advance of of their agenda is ultimately world domination and so you look at that and you get a glimpse of that maybe you hear the odd report maybe you uh, you you read something or you see something And suddenly you find yourself kind of shaking. Like the the world that's so stable and so normal and and things will be the way things have been suddenly kind of feels wobbly, doesn't it? And at times like that, we need to go to a psalm like this one, Psalm 46. If you have a Bible, uh, do grab it. But Psalm 46, and we're going to be thinking about God who is our fortress, our safe place when everything is turning to chaos. Okay, so Psalm 46. And uh, the nice thing uh, about Psalms is that they're a bit of a change from what we have been doing. We've been in the Gospels and we've been working our way through Mark. And before that, we were uh, thinking about a letter. uh, And letters tend to communicate in a different way. With Psalms, we're looking at poetry. Okay, and with poetry, what you have is very uh, brief, succinct statements, quite punchy at times, that create images. And those images stir our emotions. And so as you're reading a psalm, as you're looking at it, uh, one of the goals is to keep your heart open. And to say, okay, Lord, move me. Move me by this. I want, to, I want to connect with what's going on here, what's being reflected. This isn't just a sort of head exercise. This is really a heart-stirring opportunity to enter into the situation back then. But more than that, to allow that poem to enter into our situation. One of the things that you, you tend to do with Psalms is gradually get a sense of the structure. That they're kind of... Uh, built around sections or chunks was a nice technical term and the chunks in this psalm are very nicely marked out for us if you notice down at the end of verse three um, that's the wrong page that was disconcerting yeah good verse three uh last word selah you go what's that selah well it's it's a term that that we think means kind of pause ponder Allow that to to just soak for a moment before you carry on into the next part. So it's sort of a transition marker in the poem. And then look down at verse 7. There's another one, Selah. And then verse 11, another one. So what we have here is a uh, three-section psalm. 
And let's look at it, and we'll find that uh, as it goes on, there's actually a refrain, a sort of a chorus. Imagine a chorus and a hymn that you sing after every verse. Notice that verse 7, and then again verse 11, say the same thing. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so this is a psalm that wants to bring a sense of security, a a feeling of uh, peace on the inside when on the outside there's chaos. So let's start back at the beginning, verses 1 to 3. Actually, right above the first verse, you'll see a little bit, if you're looking at it, uh, that's uh, in, in mine, it's in capitals, but very small ones. This is part of the text. It says, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. And so afterwards, I'll let Dave, uh, who's leading us uh, in worship, explain Alamoth. I don't know what it is, but it's obviously a, a musical kind of term. It's a song. It's written by the sons of Korah. But then we jump into uh, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. It sounds like the the writer here is describing massive natural disasters, right? Really major kind of calamities, earthquakes that move mountains or create huge tidal waves, And obviously when those things happen, it's incredibly frightening. I don't think actually he's uh, dwelling on that as if that is the focus. I don't think that he's saying in natural disasters we don't fear because God is our security, although that is true. I think what he's doing here is he's describing what it's like when you're in a situation that totally destabilizes everything. He's talking about the the things that are the most secure and the most stable, that the mountains don't move and the sea pushes in and pushes out, but it never goes past that limit. It kind of, that's life, that's normal, that's stable. And he's saying, even if all of that is gone, even if the mountains slide into the sea and the sea goes absolutely crazy, even then we will not fear because of verse 1. I wonder if what he's referring to here is something that is kind of more political. Something in terms of using the mountains and the seas to describe what's happening on a global scale around him. I wonder even if he's going right back to the beginning. Right back to the very start in Genesis 1 where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then the next verse it says that everything was, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over everything. And the, the spirit of God was hovering and then God spoke. And so you've got this kind of what they call a primordial chaos. It's just this churning dark kind of sea Almost. Just no, no order to it. And then God spoke and he created order. He separated the waters uh, for above from below and light from darkness and, and, and land from sea. And, and the creation account created this sense of order that we live in and go, yep, yeah, I recognize that. I know that mountains don't move and that the sea is where it is and, and that the sky is up and the earth is down. I, I know that. 
In fact, it's really weird when you lose that sense. If you've ever lived on a ship and sailed, I mean, if you've gone Dover Calais, if you were seasick Dover Calais, I'm really sorry. That was tough. But, you know, really being at sea for days and days on end, it really gets to you after a while. You're just moving constantly. And there's no sense of stability. I remember sitting, I lived on a ship for a while. I remember being down in the dining room with no windows. We couldn't see outside. And the ship just kind of tilting back and forth. And the only way we knew what was up was to look at the drinks dispensers. Because they were clear see-through dispensers with water and milk or something or juice in there. And you'd see it just kind of doing this. And you go, my goodness, we're moving that much. And, And after a day or three or five or a week or 10 days of that, you really are pretty desperate. Once that ship gets to land, you are so ready to step onto solid ground and go, oh, that's normal. And what this psalm writer is describing here is imagine the entire earth going back. Imagine all of the order that God's created being completely reversed and going back to total chaos with with just roaring, raging sea and mountains moving and just the whole thing completely messed up. How disorientating would that be? And yet he says, we will not fear. Really? I'd be petrified. If the earth was moving like that, if the sea was was taking over like that, I'd be petrified. But the psalm writer says we will not fear because of verse 1. What is it that verse 1 says that's so significant for him? This really sets up his whole thought through the whole psalm. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Three things there, refuge, strength, and help. Refuge, first of all. Refuge is, is a place you go for safety. All right, maybe you've uh, driven down through uh, Cheddar Gorge at some point. Yeah, you remember that? It's kind of high cliffs on both sides and this road weaving its way down. Imagine a ferocious storm and that just absolutely like the skies are trying to kill you. Lightning and, and rain and, and so on. As you go down through Cheddar Gorge, there's this... Uh, a couple of places where the rock comes out over uh, kind of a, it's almost like a cave underneath uh, that's a refuge if it's raining hard and there's lightning you go under there you're not going to get hurt you're safe the rain would have to get through like 100 meters of rock to get to you that's a refuge and the psalm writer says god is our refuge we go to him and we find safety he says he's our strength He has this infinite uh, supply, infinite capacity to provide for what we need. A strength to sustain and to keep us going and to give us life. And so we go to the place of safety. We go to the person of God who has all this to give us. And then that, that second line there, he's a very present help in trouble. He's able to give us exactly what we need and he's consistently there. He's faithful. He's, he's, he's always where he should be. That is accessible to us. Maybe you have a torch in your house, a battery-operated little piece of metal or plastic with a bulb in the end. Seems insignificant until a power cut, right? And when you have a power cut, then you have to find the torch in order to have light, which is a bit backwards because it would be nice to have the light to find the torch, at least in our house. We have torches. We don't have very present torches 
right? They're not there. Every time there's a power cut, where did it go? And I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not naming names. I'm just saying torches walk, right? They do their own thing because they're just not there when you need them. But God is. And the psalm writer says he's a very present help in times of trouble. He will not abandon us. He will not suddenly be busy. He will not be distracted. When we need him, when we cry out to him, he is there. And because of who he is and because of where he is and because of what he has, uh, it says we will not fear. Even if everything that seems so normal becomes complete chaos. I think that's the foundation of the psalm. I don't think that's the goal of it. I think it's the foundation. And I think he's going to go on to say, uh, more specifically, let's talk about war. Let's talk about what happens when there are enemies. But before we go there, there's a sailor. End of verse 3. Uh, and I don't want to just skim over that. So what, what I want us to do is just take a, maybe a minute or so. And if, it's, uh, if you can reach it, if you maybe grab a post-it note, grab a pen. And perhaps on, on the note, write anything that you find creates fear within you. It could be something global. It could be uh, terrorism. You know, the fact that uh, in the past, where are we now, August, so in, in seven months... There have been, uh, what is it, 10,000 terrorist attacks in the world already in in seven months. And 20,000 people have been killed. And you go, whoa, that's scary. Maybe it's terrorism. Maybe it's something global. Maybe it's something very personal. Loss of income, loss of health, uh, loss of relationships. Something that kind of destabilizes you and makes you feel scared and afraid. Just make a note of whatever comes to mind and then look at verse 1. And think about God as our refuge, God as our strength, God as our very present help in times of trouble. Let's just, let's just say la together, shall we? Just take a minute of quiet, look at verse 1 in light of things that concern you, and maybe just reflect, maybe tell God about it. Tell him uh, how you feel, and then in a minute or so we'll carry on into the next section. Let's look at the next bit here, four to seven. And the focus here, I think, is where he's going the whole way through, actually, that that the real concern is enemies and and war and and battle and the imminent threat from the outside. And amazingly, what he does to start with in verses four and five is describe something incredibly tranquil, something peaceful, a a city where God is. And, and, And I think that in as much as that is true and was true then, it really is anticipating the future that ultimately, only ultimately when God establishes his people in his city with him at the center, only then will there be absolute, genuine, total peace as far as circumstances are concerned. But, but that future hope brings a sense of comfort and security even now. Look at verse 4. He says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? There's this city and there's this river and uh, there are irrigation streams, channels cut out so that the water gets every single place it needs to get. And God's there, and he's ready to help, and he's the one that brings safety and security. And I think, like I said, ultimately, that's a future. 
hope. That's something we anticipate and look forward to. Book of Hebrews talks about that. Uh, the city whose builder is God, and we're looking forward to that. Revelation talks about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven onto earth, and this being the place where God is and God's people are, and the, all the tears will be wiped away. But here, in this psalm, as he's describing this, you then suddenly have this kind of whiplash effect in verse 6, where he says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. There's this tumult, this kind of chaotic uh, mess going on outside. The nations are raging like the seas were roaring a few verses back. And the kingdoms, things that you think are established, are just tottering like the mountains described sliding into the seas. This is a massive, massive geopolitical change and threat. And it's right there and it's right outside. And it's so scary to be in the midst of that. But look at the next half of the verse. He, that is God, utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Even with all of that stuff going on out there, even with all of that threat, even with all of that instability and all the the terrorism and the terror networks and the the government standing still who should be doing something and other governments losing power to people that want to take over in a dangerous way, all of that stuff that can seem so destabilizing. Let's keep this in perspective. God utters a word and the earth can melt. That's kind of puts it in perspective, right? God spoke and created everything. God could just say melt and everything would be gone. And so really, is that the threat? Or is he the refuge? And that's why in verse 7 we get this refrain beginning, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Have you ever been at a, a military display, maybe a parade, where you have soldiers marching? Uh, I'm just trying to think of uh, where we see that changing of the guard, for example, where you get a, a whole group of soldiers and their boots are stamping completely in unison and they march past. It really kind of, it shakes the earth and it's quite intimidating, right? Imagine that with 20 or 100 uh, soldiers. Imagine that with 1,000 or 10,000. Imagine the biggest army the world has ever had. Imagine all of the armies of the world together marching. That would be intimidating, But verse 7 says he's the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? He's Yahweh of hosts. He's the God who makes promises. And he's the God who can keep his promises because of the power that he has. The hosts, the hosts of heaven, the hosts, the angels in army formation, they're on his side. In in Isaiah, it gives an account of one time where the Assyrians had come and they were threatening Jerusalem and it looked like certain defeat. And then in one night, one angel from God wiped out and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Now, that's impressive. That's one angel. Imagine two of them or 20 of them or hundreds of them, or thousands of them, tens of thousands times tens of thousands of these angels that are so powerful, and they are the hosts of heaven. That is the greatest army you could ever imagine, and the Lord, Yahweh, is at the head of the hosts of heaven. The Lord of hosts is with us. We should be absolutely petrified of him. 
We should be absolutely scared to death of him until we realize that he comes to be with us. God is powerful and God is present. God has all the power that he could ever need to do what he says he will do. And God has uh, the heart and the compassion and the loyalty and the faithfulness to do that for us, his people. That's why he's our fortress. That's why we can run into him and feel secure and feel safe. Even if we were in here and the armies of the world had gathered on the doorstep in Chippenham. Even if this was the center of the action and we were in here, we would be in Psalm 46 and we would be looking at this and we would be saying, hmm, the God of Jacob is our fortress. We could get into the God of Jacob, but let's just say this. Jacob was not an impressive character. He was a a liar. He was a cheat. He was not a, a great saint. And yet God is happy to be called the God of Jacob. And so we're not going to disqualify ourselves by our weaknesses. God's not going to say, yes, I'm the God of my people, except that little group in Chippenham, because I don't like them. God is the God of Jacob, and he's our God. He's the Lord of hosts, and he is with us. And so the writer says, Selah, that's enough to chew on, isn't it? That's enough to imagine. Let's just take 30 seconds. And, And in our minds, in our hearts, try to imagine an army of angels, the most powerful creatures that there are just multitudes of them and then recognize that the lord yahweh who is at the head of that army he is with us he is for us let's just take a moment to ponder that and then we'll finish up the psalm in just a few moments As we come to the end of the psalm, verses 8 to 11, what we have is is really an invitation. An invitation to a world that doesn't understand what we've just described in the middle of the psalm. An invitation to come and to see God at work and to understand his power and who he is and where we stand in light of of him and so on. So verse 8 and 9 says this, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. What it's saying is that that God, this God, the God that we know from Scripture, is the God who ultimately will defeat war. Isn't that an amazing thought? That ultimately he will end not just a war but all war. Just imagine, can't you, a hundred years ago, Right now, uh, churches may be here in Chippenham gathering and opening to Psalm 46 as this great war was just bursting onto the scene in Europe. They had no idea how long it would go on. They had no idea how it would end. They had no idea how many thousands of young men would go to France and never return. And yet God brought that war to an end. 1939, I can imagine believers coming together and looking at Psalm uh, 46 and just crying out to God again, saying, God, you did it before, do it again. As Nazi Germany started its march outwards. And again, there was six wars, six years of that war. They had no idea. 
They had no idea the atrocities. They had no idea what would happen and what it would take to end the war in terms of atomic bombs, in terms of the, uh, the atrocities that, that occurred in Germany and in Poland. And I was just at Auschwitz a few weeks ago, most sobering place I've ever been, just trying to fathom how any humans could be so hideous and so evil to just feed thousands of people through gas chambers, one after another, just unbelievable. And it must have looked like it was an impossible situation, and it must have looked like evil was going to prevail, and God stopped it. And then in the 50s and the 60s into the 70s, there was the Cold War, and there was this kind of sort of a gridlock, and everyone was living in fear of, of which side's going to lose the, their bottle first, who's going to press the button and launch the missiles, and then it's all going to be finished. And, and it looked like an impossible situation with the communist bloc the way it was. And then in 1988-89, uh, many of us remember the, the Iron Curtain just coming down as if it was a, a, a row of dominoes. Surely, whatever was going on politically, surely God was in that. Surely there was an answer to prayer there that was quite astonishing, giving us a window of opportunity for the church to be built in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet bloc. And here we are now, potentially facing a very dangerous threat, and it can feel like there's no hope, and yet God is the God who ends wars. And ultimately, he's the God who will end all war. God is going to make it so that every gun, every weapon, every tank, every grenade needs to be melted down and reused for something else because there's simply no need for them anymore. What a day that's going to be. And that's the invitation here is to come and see this God, recognize him in a world that mocks and says he doesn't exist, he doesn't act, he's irrelevant. It's an invitation to to come and see what he's done already and to anticipate what he will do. And then verse 10, God steps in. Verse 10's in quotes. This is God speaking now. And imagine the, the nations rising up together, nation joining with nation to fight against others and to fight against God. And there's all this, this turmoil. And then verse 10 comes and God says, stop. Stop. Be still. Know that I am God. It's a command to the armies of the world. It's not an instruction to believers before a church service. It's the, an instruction to the armies of the world to stop and to be still and know that he is God. He goes on, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God will fulfill his purposes. What a hope that is for us. What a comfort when we feel destabilized and fearful. And then verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We don't need to be afraid. Whatever happens, however things escalate, we don't need to be people gripped by fear if we're people that are gripped by the gospel of who our God is. God infinitely strong, overwhelmingly powerful, and yet a God who is with us, a God who is for us, a God who wants to be our refuge. In the big things and in the little things. He wants us to run into him and for us to view him as our fortress. Think of that uh, fortress. It's a sort of uh, built up castle like building up on a high place. It's designed to be impregnable and God is our fortress. We run into him and no matter what comes against us, we're safe. It doesn't mean, of course, that God doesn't uh, allow anything bad to happen. 
thousands of Christians right now as we're sitting here uh, fleeing in terror. And this, this verse is not, uh, this passage is not a promise that God will deliver them from all of that and it will be easy for them. The Bible never promises that. But it does offer hope that ultimately we do know the end of the story. That ultimately God will defeat all of his enemies and he will do so in a way that is kind and loving and caring to those that he's committed himself to. We may not find security in our circumstances. God may choose to let us go through some terrible things, but he's still our fortress. He's still going to defeat war. And in the end, we are still going to stand and praise him in our flesh, celebrating who he is and what he's done in this world, in this history. It's big, isn't it? This psalm points us to a big reality. And yet it's a comforting one. It's a comforting one because we have a God who is not just powerful, but he's good. He's not just going to defeat his enemies. He's going to continually shelter and comfort us. This is the kind of God that we're excited about at Trinity. It's the kind of God that we think the world needs to know. And what we're going to do now, I'm just going to pray and, and give us a moment just to pause. And, and, and even in our own hearts, in our own fears, in our own doubts, in our own insecurities, just say, God, I want to trust you. It's not easy. You know my struggles, but I want to trust you. You're strong. You're a refuge. You're a fortress. I want you to be mine. Father, we do want to say thank you that you are our God. We pray that you would stir within us both a, a reverence and an awe for just how powerful and how, how absolutely in charge you are. And at the same time, Lord, stir within us a delight that you're our God and you're for us. And that you invite us into your embrace to find shelter and refuge with you. Lord, we do pray for our brothers and sisters that are really suffering incredibly in Iraq, in Syria, in the Middle East right now. We pray that you would give them hope, give them comfort, give them even the strength to face death in a way that perhaps can register in the hearts and in the, the minds of those who are performing these atrocities. Lord, we just want to lift up the church to you. And we thank you, Lord, that ultimately we know the end of the story and that ultimately we don't need to live in fear because you will make all things good. And in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And right now, we pray that we would be a people who trust you who see you for the kind of God that you are in terms of your strength, but also in terms of your compassion toward us. Make us a people that trust you in our circumstances. The challenges we face, health and family and finance and work and, uh, and maybe uh, fears and doubts and temptations. Lord, help us to be a people who run into your arms to find safety. We just want to tell you we love you. We want to tell you we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.